Hello and welcome to the Village Church Podcast. My name is John and we are glad to have you join us. We work to deliver our most recent preaching content to you as soon as possible, so let's get into God's Word together. We are in Exodus, the ninth chapter today, Exodus chapter 9, if you have a Bible with you. If you do not have a Bible, there are some available on the table back there. Please take and use one if you need it. Take it home with you. If you know someone who needs it, please give it to them. The Lord God of heaven delivers, redeems, and dwells with his people. This is not something that we hope God will do. This is not something we are simply looking at God having done. The Lord God of heaven does deliver, redeem, and dwell with his people. As we continue on our journey through Exodus, we find ourselves in Exodus chapter 9, coming into the middle of the portion of Scripture that deals with the ten plagues on Exodus, the ten judgments, the ten calamities, whatever you want to call them. We often just refer to them as the ten plagues. In Exodus chapter 9, we are coming into the fifth one, So uh, if you haven't been with us, or if you haven't been with us for a while, or if you're keeping track as we go along, we're halfway through the plagues. Five of ten, we're halfway through. Pharaoh is knowledgeable about God. Who are the the people that we're going to meet? The Lord is the main figure in his word. It's all about him. Through the Exodus narrative, Moses is a prominent leading figure. In this, the first half, and not even the full first half of Exodus, from Exodus 1 through to Exodus, the end of chapter 14, Pharaoh is also a fairly leading figure. Interesting. Once we get to that portion of Scripture where Pharaoh and his army are at the bottom of the Red Sea because God has judged them, Pharaoh is only spoken of negatively through the rest of the Scripture. He, he disappears, there are figures that we see, but he is a negative figure. I, 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 can't, I, I can't really articulate that any more than, than to say Pharaoh is a negative figure in the scriptures. He is opposed to God as we have been encountering him from the time that Moses went before him in Exodus 5 to now in Exodus 9 and through until Exodus 14. He is opposed to and refusing to obey God. He is a negative figure. There's Moses, Pharaoh, there's Aaron. We're going to see other people kind of coming in, but general groups as the plagues continue to go on. There's the Egyptians, the Hebrew people. Pharaoh is knowledgeable about God. We discussed last week. Why? Because God has made himself known to Pharaoh. I the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, as we're going to even see in today's passage, he's made himself known to Pharaoh. But Pharaoh is hardening his heart. In light of the knowledge of God, he is refusing to obey what God is saying. He is hardening himself, giving himself further to the sin of his heart, and opposing God. I want to ask this. I typically leave questions for thought until the end of the sermon, but this just seemed like a right place to ask. What about you? Are you, as we see in Pharaoh, Are you refusing to obey God somewhere in your life? Has God spoken to you? God, in revealing himself to you and causing you to be knowledgeable of him, we don't do that by nature. God reveals himself to us. As God reveals himself to you, as God's word is opened up to you, are you refusing to obey him somewhere in your life? The Egyptians are suffering the judgment of God in these plagues, because of their refusal to obey God. Are you suffering judgment in your life as you refuse to obey God? God continues to extend opportunity to Pharaoh that he would obey. We're going to even see, again, we'll see this today, God is extending an opportunity. If you refuse, he says over and over, he'll say it in the text that we'll read here in a moment. Yet Pharaoh continues to harden his heart to what God says to do. Are you? Are you obeying God in all that he says? Are you striving to obey God in all that he says? Or are you refusing? As we gather around God's word today, I appeal to you, if you are refusing God's word, repent, believe the gospel, and obey the Lord God. Obey God's command to believe in the name of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
repent of sin, and obey God. Would you read with me Exodus chapter 9? We'll read verses 1 through 7 this morning. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let them go and still hold them, behold, the the hand of the Lord will fall with a very severe plague on your livestock that are in the field, the horses, the donkeys, the camels, the herds, and the flocks. But the Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt, so that nothing of all that belongs to the people of Israel shall die. And the Lord set a time, saying, Tomorrow the Lord will do this thing in the land. And the next day... The Lord did this thing. All the livestock of the Egyptians died, but none of the livestock of the people of Israel died. And Pharaoh sent, and behold, not one of the livestock of Israel was dead. But the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people go. Oh, Father, we come to you this morning, merciful and gracious Lord, appealing to you for your help by the power of your Spirit as we examine the truth of your word. We are weak and frail, and our thinking is faulty because of sin and the fall. You have redeemed us, but we are still trapped in this body of death, and we are awaiting the day that you will rescue us. So, Father, as we examine your word this morning, I pray that you would speak to us. Father, as I speak and my voice is audible, I pray, God, that your voice would be what is heard. Father, speak to my heart and to me as you speak through me. Father, I pray that we would come to understand who you are and how you work among mankind. Father, how you care for your people and how you deal with your enemies. I pray, Father, that as your word is opened up, I pray that you would humble sinners to repentance, God, and that you would save them. I pray that as your people, we would live holy lives, and I pray through the preaching of your word that holiness would be promoted among your people. And I pray, Father, that Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, would be exalted this day as we learn from you and worship your name. It is in his name that we pray. Amen. I entitled the sermon today, very craftily, I want you to know that I worked through about eight different sermon titles. I settled on, and the livestock died. I draw that from verse 6. It's not a direct quote, but the thought comes from there. The livestock of the Egyptians died. I almost entitled the sermon, When the Cows Don't Come Home. (laughs) Funny. I laughed too. And this is a funny church to actually talk about livestock because there are several here that understand what that means. We have several livestock people in our church. Um, When the cows don't come home, I settled on and the livestock died. Why did I almost choose when the cows don't come home? Because we all know the old saying, yeah, when when the cows come home, until the cows is drawing something out, we're waiting in anticipation for this thing that's going to happen. But on this day, they didn't come home. God killed the cows dead in the field. Too many of us probably relate to that statement too. When the cows don't come home, the livestock died. From today's text, may we learn this. The Lord's hand of blessing supplies all things for all people. Every single person on planet earth has what they have because of God's merciful hand of blessing. Everyone, sinner and saint, every person. The good things that you hear, you're like, man, pastor, a lot of people have a lot of bad things, right? But they've got life, and they have it because God gave it to them. Everything that is possessed by us in this life that we count as good, our, our, our families, our children, our, our food, our homes, our jobs, our transportation, our church, Everything that we enjoy in this life, we have because God has given it to us. The term, theologically speaking, the term is called common grace. God is gracious. God is merciful. And when the word common is attached to it, when it refers to God, it is talking that he has extended mercy and grace in the form of daily living to all that live. God's common grace is what gets the sinner out of bed in the morning. It's what feeds those who are rebellious to him. In Exodus chapter 9, verses 1 through 7, God's common grace gave Pharaoh livestock in the field, horses, donkeys, camels, herds, and flocks. 
This is not just because he's king of the land. God's common grace has provided for everything that everyone has. He is the provider. May we learn today that God's hand of blessing supplies all things to all people. But when we refuse to obey, he can and eventually he will remove his common grace from man. Now I want to set up very briefly before we dive into our text. We are dealing today with Pharaoh who is refusing to obey. And if we're paying attention five plagues in, God is pummeling Egypt and Pharaoh. He's destroying this country. I mentioned last week that a commentary writer talks about the de-creation of Exodus as the plagues draw on. He's literally just taking it apart bit by bit, confronting their pride, confronting their sin, confronting their gods, and ruining a country. Today we're going to talk about a man who is resistant and refusing to obey God, and he's losing. The entire book of Job is about a righteous and upright man who feared God. Who the Bible says, there are not many like him that have ever lived. He was extremely wealthy and had many great possessions, but he was righteous and he was upright. And God allowed for him to lose all things. And God restored to him, which is a twisted doctrine where if you just obey, God will restore whatever you've lost or he'll give to you. This is how prosperity begins to creep in. No, this is one of few examples where God gives back to a man who is faithful and upright. Why? Because God allowed Satan to have his way with Job and Satan attacks at Job and Job remains faithful. Though he questions, though he's angry, I will ask you, God, why these things and God confronts him. He lost everything and he was obedient. So let's not think that only those who disobey lose everything. Why do we have? Why do we not have? We have because of God's common grace to man. Why do we not have? Because God, as Job so rightly said, because God gives and God takes away. This is important. I'm not going to dwell on Pharaoh and Job and contrasting, but it's important for us to understand we are dealing specifically with a man who is refusing to obey God and he's losing. In verse 1, go into Pharaoh, look at the phrase, thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, let my people go that they may serve me. This is not the first time he said it. God's claim of the people of Israel is the same. They're my people. You have them. Let them go that they may worship me. You're holding, remember back in Exodus 4, let my firstborn child go, Pharaoh. Israel is my firstborn. Give him to me. If you don't, I will kill your firstborn son. We don't like looking at those. We're like, ew, that doesn't sound like God of love. God of justice, let's not wash out justice because of love. Go to Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord of the Hebrews. We have seen this phrase three times before as we've journeyed through Exodus. And they are big scenes. So I want to remind us that the first time we saw it was in Exodus chapter 3. You can turn back if you want, but we're just going to be there for a brief moment. In Exodus chapter 3 verse 18, Moses is on the mountain and God appears to him in the bush that burns but is not consumed. And God said to him back in Exodus chapter 3, verse 18, he says to him, The elders of Israel listen to your voice. You shall go to Pharaoh and say to him, middle of verse 18, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us, and now please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. The first scene is in God's instruction on the mountain about what Moses and the elders are supposed to say to Pharaoh when they confront him. Then in Exodus chapter 5, the third verse, then they, Moses and the elders, said, as God told them, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall on us. They're concerned about his judgment if they don't obey. Fascinating. Lest he fall on us with pestilence. Israel is in a position when they first meet Pharaoh saying, we've got to go and obey him so that he doesn't judge us with pestilence or sword. And then we begin seeing Pharaoh refusing to obey and what is happening? Pestilence and sword. 
It's the second scene when they go to Pharaoh and they say what God has instructed them. The third scene that we see this phrase, God of the Hebrews, Exodus chapter 7 and verse 16. And you shall say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you saying, let my people go that they may serve me in the wilderness. So far you have not obeyed. We see it again here in chapter 9. We'll see it again later. This phrase happens again. In Exodus 3, we talked about how this phrase, the God of the Hebrews, is singular in nature. I'm the God of those people, my people. We talked about there is one God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, there is one God. We saw the singular nature of this phrase. There is one God over one people. In Exodus 5, we saw the possessive nature of this phrase. God's people belong to him, and he will have them. I am God, they are my people, and I will have them. In Exodus 7, we see the confronting nature of this phrase. Let my people go. If you refuse, I will. The Lord, the God of the Hebrews. This phrase emphasizes what we began seeing more clearly in the fourth plague. There are only two groups of people in Egypt. God's people and not God's people. Moreover, as I've said many a time, there are only two groups of people on the face of planet Earth. God's people and not God's people. You understand that what we are watching and observing as we journey through Exodus, again, with the history of God's people, and if you are saved through faith, you are a part of that. You share in that history. We are seeing a micro glimpse of how God delivers, redeems, and dwells with his people. He is one God. He, they belong to, we belong to the Lord our God, and he will have his people. Remember, important note, God's people are God's people by God's covenant. God's people are God's people by God's covenant. We did nothing to make ourselves God's people. We cannot make anyone God's people. Israel did not make themselves God's people. God made his people, his people, through his covenant. So God identifies himself again. This is important. Pharaoh Go to Pharaoh, Moses, go to Pharaoh and say, thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews. Can you imagine how irritated Pharaoh would be to hear that at this point in time? Moses, shut up. I don't want to hear. The blood went away. We still got the frogs. The gnats are a pain. They're leaving. The the flies, go. I don't want to hear this anymore. No, you're going to hear it, Pharaoh. Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, let my people go. And there it is. Look, verse 2, for if you refuse, look at the start of verse 3, behold, the hand of the Lord will fall. If you refuse and still hold them, behold, the hand of the Lord will fall with a very severe plague. I want us to see very clearly I want us to observe the opportunity that God is giving to Pharaoh, let them go, for if you do not, just just let them go. But he can't. Why? Because he is in utter and complete rebellion to God. He still is holding on to that he is God. I am God. If you refuse, behold, the hand of the Lord will fall. This divine calamity that is coming on Egypt in this plague, this fifth plague on the livestock, the water to blood, the, 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 the frogs, the gnats, the flies, now the death of the livestock, this divine calamity that God is bringing is Pharaoh's own fault on himself and on his people. Now, this is an interesting thought for us because typically when calamity comes on people's lives, they don't want to ever take responsibility for it and they don't ever want to think that I did this to myself. Pharaoh is not standing around looking or thinking, 
I did this. Now, we're going to see some things as we continue on in our journey into chapter 9 and 10. We're going to see some things that maybe he's starting to realize, man, I'm not, I'm not doing very well here at being king of Egypt. The plague will be severe. Verse 3, do you see it? I don't know what version of the Bible you have in your hands today. The English Standard Version says, Behold, the hand of the Lord will fall with a very severe plague. Most English translations have that word severe. The New Living Translation has the word deadly. The NIV has the word terrible. And if you are holding in your hand a King James Version of the Bible, you see the word grievous. A very grievous The Hebrew word here for severe or grievous is the word kaved. I have no Hebrew or Greek training, but I listened to a guy pronounce it, so I know how to say it. Kaved. Carries several meanings. Heavy, great, massive, difficult, burdensome, very oppressive. As it relates to the plagues, we have seen it used to describe, though you didn't notice it, the swarm of flies in Exodus 8, 24, as great. A cavade of flies, swarm of flies. We saw it again to describe, or we will see again to describe the hail in Exodus 9, 18 as heavy. We will see it in chapter 10 to define the locusts as dense. This word is a recurring word that Moses is using, which is interesting. And you're like, Pastor, why are you talking about this? Because I want you to understand the specificity with which God wrote his word to you. The, the flies caved, the hail caved, the locusts caved, the severe plague on the livestock caved, heavy, dense, burdensome, oppressive, great, Interesting is the exact same word in Exodus chapter 7, verse 14, referencing the word hardened and Pharaoh's heart. Pharaoh's heart is caved. Pastor, why are you saying this? Because I want you to understand that the plagues are a reflection of Pharaoh's heart. He refuses to obey, God sends a plague. He hardens his heart, God sends a plague. It's the increasing intensity of the plagues are directly linked to Pharaoh's intensifying of his hardened heart to obey God. He's refusing to obey and God is dispensing more judgment and they're getting harder and heavier as we go along until the firstborn are taken from the land of Egypt. In Exodus chapter 9, verse 3. The first four plagues have affected man and beast. We've seen this. They're gnats. We're on man and beast. The flies are on man and beast. They're everywhere. The first four plagues affected man and beast. But this one, verses 1 through 7, on the livestock is going to affect man by being aimed at the beast. They've affected the beast. Now this plague is aimed at the beast. Note, will fall on Pharaoh and all the Egyptians, livestock that are in the field, the horses, the donkeys, the camels, the herds, and the flocks. I want you to remember that phrase. If you, if you like to write in your Bible, I actually would encourage you to, to underline or encircle livestock that are in the field. If you're a note taker, just put it in your notes somewhere. But I want you to remember that. I'm going to remind you of remembering that phrase a couple more times here this morning. Livestock that are in the field. It's going to be important as we move forward into coming plagues. Look at the animals that are described. One, livestock. So this is cattle in general. We understand cattle to have been abundant in ancient Egypt, even still today. We'll talk more about cattle in a moment. Look at the other other ones that are listed here, though. Livestock that are in the field, horses, donkeys, camels, herds, and flocks. Why didn't the Lord just leave it at Moses? Tell him about when I knocked down all the livestock in judgment. 
Like we, we would have been okay with just at livestock, right? Okay, livestock. But no, the Holy Spirit inspires Moses to be very specific here and to talk about horses, donkeys, camels, herds, and flocks. Why? Horses. Representative throughout all of Scripture as military might. Throughout all of Scripture, horses represent battle, warfare, might, power. I mean, think about some of our favorite verses in the book of Revelation. And behold, I saw one coming, riding upon a white horse. What's he doing? Executing his judgment for all of eternity and taking us to be with him. Man, that should get you fired up. Horses representing military might. Donkeys. Burden bearers. Workers. Load carriers. The herds and the flocks. Meat for food. Still to this day, sheep and goats are part of the main food source of meat in that region of the world. They don't eat their cattle. Why? Cattle are sacred in many parts of the world. And I know that they're sacred in America because a bunch of you are probably going to eat burgers for lunch. Camels. I have to make a specific note about this because I don't ever want you to be put off. You know what I learned this past week? People use camels in Exodus chapter 9 verse 3 to say the Bible is all fake. Isn't that dumb? Like if I'm going to attack something in the scripture, I've been reading and studying it for a very long time. I've thought long and hard about what would I attack in God's word if I were going to go after something. It surely wouldn't be camels in Exodus chapter 9 verse 3. But do you know why people will use it and say, well, no, I don't believe any of it. Because ancient Egyptian inscriptions, the writings, inscriptions of this time period don't reference camels once. So historicists, historists, history people, that one, that one, historians, thank you. I'm like, what is the word I'm looking for? Historians will say, well, they don't reference them in their writing, so therefore they didn't have them. They didn't know about them. There were no camels in Egypt, and here they are talking about camels. Now, I don't believe any of it. This is all made up great. Maybe Moses was real, but he's just making up a story at this point. I don't ever want people that I am blessed to shepherd to be put on their heels in anything when it comes to God's word. God's word does not leave us in a position of, uh, Genesis chapter 12 Abram goes to Egypt. And do you know what is listed among the great wealth of Abram when he goes to Egypt? Camels. There are no camels in Egypt. None of their writings talk about them. I don't care about your writings because I know that this writing is the truth. And I have great reference for camels at least having been in and out of Egypt for centuries prior to them being here. So Camels in Egypt, don't be put on your heels because people say, eh, know your Bible. Read it, study it, link it, know what it says, and don't be put back when somebody is a skeptic about it. And ca- camels, oh, like I've got, I have a whole list of things I would go to before camels in Exodus 9. <clears throat> if something happens to your main mode of transportation, our modern vehicles, right? Your work we're in trouble. Any one of us, if we go out into the parking lot, and I, man, I pray it doesn't happen to me or any of us here, and we go, click, 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 that's a bad day. You, you're not going anywhere. You're done. Not to mention, what if, what if that vehicle is your work, and now it's not operating, you're not working? To understand that this plague is going to come upon the Egyptians' main modes of transportation and work, their military might. Because I'm going to leave your livestock dead in the field. I am removing your ability to go anywhere or do anything. Some, David writes in Psalm chapter 20, verse 7. And I think, I think he may have even had Pharaoh and his horses and chariots in mind. Some trust in horses and chariots. But what do you trust in when the horse is dead? The chariot's now going nowhere, so your trust in the chariot's useless if the horse is dead. If the horse is alive, at least the chariot can move. 
But all of a sudden, the horses are dead. The chariots aren't moving now, are they? Since the Egyptians had, we talked about, a frog goddess. Remember Hecht, the frog goddess? Goddess embodied with a frog on her head. Man, it's weird. Since they had a frog goddess, it should come as no surprise to us that they had many gods embodied by cattle, specifically bulls. Many gods embodied by bulls and cattle in ancient Egypt. But what confidence do you continue to have and how do you worship a God who is powerless to keep the bearers of its image from getting sick, falling weak, and falling over dead in the field? Can do nothing. None of them are coming back from the dead. None of them are rising back to their feet. They're getting weak, they're getting sick, and they're falling down dead. And all of a sudden, the God that you believe in that is embodied by this animal that just fell dead can do nothing. Can you imagine? So now, we're not going anywhere. We're not doing anything. Our army's crippled. Our gods apparently are powerless. And then the herds and the flocks. Man, I was going to eat that lamb tomorrow for dinner. I had people coming over and we were roasting goat tomorrow and it just died in the field. Your food food source is gone. God is falling heavy on Egypt. Pastor, you have said before that we are image bearers of God. And we get sick and we get weak and we die. What's the difference between us and the Egyptians? The Lord Jesus Christ. We have no confidence in rising from the dead outside of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Christian's singular hope and great confidence, the reason that we worship God, is because the Lord Jesus Christ did become weak, did suffer, did die, but did not remain dead in the field. The Egyptian cow gods can do nothing. Our God, Ephesians says, brought Jesus Christ out from the grave, and he is alive. And this is the distinguishing hope and confidence that every Christian should be so firmly planted on. What is our hope in life and death? Christ, he lives. Christ, he lives. The gods of the world are not resurrecting anything that bears their image. The cattle gods are not resurrecting anything that bears their image. But our God, who made man in his image and according to his likeness, and who came to us in the form of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, died and resurrected that image. And we have the greatest of confidence in the fact that Jesus Christ came out of the grave. The fact I want you to begin hanging on to that word in connection with the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. You believe that Jesus Christ rose again? Yes, I do. Why? Because it is a fact that he did. Jesus Christ, dead for our sin according to the scripture, buried, alive again three days later, appeared to many. It is not a hope that he did it. It is a fact and we are trusting in it. If God's word is truth, when we believe what God's word says, we are saying, I believe in the factual, physical evidence of Jesus Christ arising from the dead. The Egyptian gods could not give them what the Lord God gives to his people. They just gave them a bunch of dead cows lying out in the field. I want you to remember that. Lying in the field. And just as God did with the flies, God makes a distinction. We must pay attention to it. In the plague of the flies, I want you to think back. Maybe you weren't here with us, so you have the opportunity to look back. But remember with me, if you were here, we looked at the plague of flies. Remember that there is a division between the people. God says, I will put a division between my people and your people. But where was that division actually seen? Congregational input time. Where was the division seen that God put between the people. I'll give you a minute to think about it. Time's up. The division was seen in the land. 
You can go back, Exodus chapter 8, verse 22. But on that day, I will set apart the land of Goshen, where my people dwell. There's a division and a distinction between the people, but it's visible in the land. Here in the plague of livestock, remember, in the field, where is that distinction visible? It's visible in the livestock. The livestock of the Egyptians die. The livestock of the Israelites do not die. And the Bible is very specific. Look what it says. Not one, middle of verse 7, not one of the livestock of Israel was dead. All the livestock of the Egyptians, end of verse 6, died. God making a distinction. In his sovereignty and by his design, God has appointed this plague. He has set the time. Look what he says at the end of verse 5. The start of verse 5, And the Lord set a time saying, Tomorrow the Lord will do this thing in the land. Verse 6, And the next day the Lord did this thing. God has set it. God has executed his judgment. And verse 6 tells us, Not one of the livestock of the people of Israel died. And we must realize that's not coincidental. It's intentional. God has intentionally preserved the livestock of Israel. Why? He has preserved their means of worshiping him in the future. God intentionally, none of them are going to die. Because my people are going to need those. We can even see it. If we look back in the story, in the narrative of Moses, and he's like, we got to make sacrifices to our God, and, and the sacrifices that we're going to make are going to be abominable to the Egyptians, so we've got to go way out to do it. we got to take all our, our animals with us. God is preserving Israel's livestock. God is preserving their future ability to worship him. That word all. This is important, and we're going to see it in the next couple of plagues. This is very important for us. If that word all in this text means every one of, we run into a problem as we march through the rest of the plagues. You want to know why? Because boils are going to happen in the next plague and they're going to happen on the beast. And in the plague after that, there's going to be hail and thunder and lightning and fire and it's going to kill beasts that, well, they weren't dead because they died in the hail. So what does all mean here in this text for us? It means all of the types of livestock, horses, donkeys, camels, herds, and flocks that were in the field. We must be very thoughtful and very intentional when we look at a word in our English language today. When we say all, all the village church came together. There's people not here today. All of us didn't, but all types of us did. Here, when it says all the livestock of the Egyptians died, it cannot mean that every one of the livestock of the Egyptians died because in the sixth plague and in the seventh plague and in the final plague, more livestock is going to die. So some of all of, some of all of the cattle, of the livestock, horses, donkeys, camels, herds, and flocks, did die, but not one of the livestock of Israel. And in Exodus chapter 9, verse 7, again, we're seeing it over and over. I almost combined the livestock plague and the boils plague, except for this verse. It's parallel verse in the next plague changes a bit, so I wanted to keep them separate. Exodus 9, verse 7, And Pharaoh sent... And behold, not one of the livestock of Israel was dead, but the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people go. Instead of, what should he have done? Instead of, get out of my land. Leave. Now, all sorts of my livestock are dead. Go. Instead of sending people out, he sends informants to Goshen. You get over there, and you find out if any of their livestock have died. Why? Because if any died, Merrow's God is a fake. Moses' God is a fake. If any of their livestock have died, he wants to know, are any of them alive? If they are, then he's a sham, and I've just proven it the way he proved my magicians to be a sham, and I'm not letting them go. Hardens his heart. What did he find out? 
None of them died. What does he do? Doesn't let them go. He draws further into, I am not giving in to obey this God. Another shot to his pride instead of get out of my country. No, 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 you're not going anywhere. When God's power was further confirmed, at this point, let's face it, over pretty much everything that Pharaoh thought he and his gods had under their control, he doesn't relinquish anything. He further hardens himself to the reality of God. I'm not going to obey. I'm not going to let his people go. No, he hardened his heart even more. As God kills Pharaoh's sacred cows, it's worth really looking at our own lives and asking some questions. These cows, they're worshipped, they're falling down dead and nothing can happen to them. They're very, the very thing they're worshipping, it's gone, they're dying. Do we have any sacred cows? Do you? Do I? Things that we care more about than our obedience to God? I would obey God, but dot, 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 because I have dot, dot, dot. I love this thing. Sometimes it's relationships, possessions. I don't know. I don't know what it might be in your life, but I'm just wondering, do we have sacred cows? Do we have things that are more important to us that we care more about than obeying God. Pharaoh is refusing to obey God. Are you refusing to obey God? God's extremely rich and merciful hand of blessing provides for all people everywhere. But that merciful and gracious hand of blessing can so quickly in our sinful flesh and pride become something that we worship, becomes something that we care so much more about than our obedience to God, quickly becomes an idol. Good things very easily becoming idols. I don't often talk about idols in our lives. I don't often name them. But if you stop, if you take stock in your life, I bet the things that tempt you more as an idol in your life I bet there are more good things tempting you to become an idol than bad things. So easily, so easily we give ourselves to something more than we give ourselves to God. God's people are not to have idols. Pharaoh had idols. They were, in fact, actual cows, and God killed them. God's people are to worship the Lord, the Lord alone. We are not to love one thing, one person, we're not to have a greater love than to set our affection on the one who has set his affection on us, the Lord our God. I cannot love my wife more than I love God. If I do, she's become an idol. I'm called to love my wife. Now I live in attention. I must love my wife well as God calls me to, but I must be careful to not love my wife so much that I let that love for her blind me to obeying God. Do you see now how quickly something that is good can become an idol. I love my children, but I cannot love my children more than I love God because at the moment I begin loving my children more than I love God, I will stop obeying God and doing what God has called me to do because I am loving something he has given me to love more than I am loving him. Do you have any sacred cows in your life? God's people are not to have idols. We'll see God give this command later in Exodus chapter 22. Man, this whole sacred cow thing makes that golden calf episode in Exodus 32 really interesting, doesn't it? Cows, worshiping, images. We're not to do that. Like, we, we shouldn't have pictures that we look at and say, that's what Christ looked like. And when I worship, I have this image in my head of that because God says, I dwell in unapproachable light. No man has seen the Father except him who came from the Father. He made him known, and we haven't seen him so why do we stand and worship? Pastor, when you sing, your eyes are closed like all the time unless you don't know the words. Because I am, I am trying to grasp at what must my God look like? What must the image of my God on his throne be? Because I have no frame of reference for it. 
And as soon as an idol comes in, the Israelites, this is the God that brought you out of Egypt, and the golden calf is in front of them. We'll talk more about that in several weeks. This command to not have idols given to Israel, restated by our king when a scribe in Mark chapter 12 asked the Lord Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? And as we've talked about so often, the Lord Jesus Christ responding to him saying, the most important, the first commandment is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, there is one And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your mind and with all your strength. You shall have no greater love than me, the Lord your God. Do you? As he preserved ancient Israel's future ability to worship by saving their livestock, I want us to understand that God has forever preserved the ability of his people to worship him in the death, the burial, and the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Christians do not come to faith unable to worship God because in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ, God has made it possible for us to worship him. Christ said in John 14, no man comes to the Father but by me. In 1 Corinthians 15, 3, he died for our sins according to the scripture. He was raised for our justification, Romans 4, 25 says. And in Hebrews 7, 25, it says that he lives to intercede for us. Do you understand? Our coming to God is the work of God. And our ability to worship God is the preserving work of God for his people to worship him. Just as none of Israel's cows died, and in however many years down the road from this plague in Exodus, they're going to be able to construct an altar by a pattern that God gave them. And they will be able to turn and take of the bulls and of the flocks and of the herds, and they will be able to offer the sacrifices that God says, this is pleasing to me. You're my people, and I love you, and when you worship me, you do it it with these things in this way, and he's preserved them from a time when they are in bondage, and they are in torment, and they want to be released, and God has preserved a way for them to worship him, just as he has preserved a way for us to worship him forever in the Lord Jesus Christ. Man, I tell you what, that was lighting me up as I was dwelling on that thought. Our worship is not perfect. We come here and when we sing, sometimes we don't look happy to be in the presence of the king. My God is the ancient of days. And I want to go home. I don't want to do this. I'm bored. We're in this school. You're before the king who has preserved a way for you to be before him. We don't think about it. Our worship is not perfect. Our praise is faulty. We fail to pray, but God has preserved a way for us to worship him. And not only has he preserved a way, he has preserved a perfect way. We are faulty, but when we praise when we worship, when we have confidence in the great hope that we have in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we are worshiping because a perfect, spotless lamb lives and intercedes for us. As God makes further distinction between his people and the people of Egypt, as he preserves a way for his people to worship, we are right to think about the way that God has, through Jesus Christ, preserved a way for us to worship him. We're going to share in the Lord's Supper. I would be remiss to not share. If you have not placed your faith and hope and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, do so today. Repent of sin and trust in Jesus Christ. We are all of us equally sinful. We are born into sin in iniquity conceived, the psalmist wrote. Conceived in iniquity. Brought forth in the same condition. And God, through the work of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, made a way to reconcile sinful man to himself. And that is what is symbolized on this table before you. We do not worship perfectly. This bread is not perfect. This juice is not perfect. This is 
a terrible excuse for a meal, for a supper. We don't sing on pitch. We're not happy to be with people. We're imperfect. We look to the author, Hebrews says, the author and the perfecter of our faith. We look to the Lord Jesus Christ. I'll pray, and this table will be open for us to worship a perfect God who has preserved a way for us to remember and worship him. Heavenly Father, we come before you today thankful, God, for your word, thankful that you have preserved for us a way to be reconciled to you. Father, we praise you for the perfect, spotless, sinless life of the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord Jesus, you resisted temptation. You did not sin, and yet you bore in your body on the cross my sin and the sin of the world, the sin of those gathered here in this room. You poured out your blood for the remission of sin that we would be washed so many songs that we sing, that we would be washed whiter than snow. We have confidence in the fact that you have completed this work perfectly and that through faith in you, we receive all of the goodness of God and his promises to his people. That not one of these promises will fail because in you, the Lord Jesus Christ, all of God's promises are yes. Thank you for being our perfect, perfect sacrifice. Father, we seek to honor you and to worship you as we share in this, commanded by our King, the Lord Jesus. Do this in remembrance of me. Father, receive our worship. Be glorified and honored as we come before you, remembering his death and proclaiming it until he comes. Father, we love you. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you for joining us this week. If you have any questions about anything you just heard or if we can pray for you, please contact us at info at Until next time, stay in God's word.